from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, comedy was one of the things that was keeping my head above water. Pretty much everything we think we know about it is wrong. Our body cannot differentiate between real and fake laughter. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Last year, I went to what they call a yoga class. I'm in the basement of a midtown Manhattan office building. About a dozen of us gathered together in this small room, very small and sweltering. We're here for what they call laughter yoga. And now, because it's called yoga, you're probably thinking we were all doing downward dogs and headstands, but it's not like that. It's more like what I imagine comedy improv classes to be. What he was saying, so here we are in the blood of a lump. Let's tell each other where it is. So that horrible pigeon French is me and the other members of my laughter yoga class doing one of the exercises. I really wanted to test this theory that laughter was going to make me feel better and be better the way actual yoga actually does. And on this particular afternoon, I kind of needed it. I had just flown nine hours home from Europe, uh, and I had just lost my iPhone as well. I was jet-lagged and and feeling kind of bad. But fortunately, I didn't have to go do this on my own. I, I roped in my friend who's kind of an expert, Mary Harris. Mary is a health reporter at WNYC. (laughs) Oh my gosh, a guy just walked in. He's like, what is going on? So Mary, uh, other than just being a general good egg, why did you uh, agree to do this? Well, I found it kind of intriguing. First of all, because laughter yoga has nothing to do with being funny. Or yoga. Or yoga. (laughs) I first want to say there's no wrong way to laugh. That was Jonathan Applefield. He's the guy who led our laughter yoga class. So if you don't feel like it, we fake it. We fake it till we make it, okay? So we're just going to start with ho, ho, ha, This is what Jonathan kept saying, fake it till you make it. And it got us wondering, are there real physical benefits to laughing? That's what we set out to investigate to find out if there's maybe some truth to the cheesy old cliche, laughter is the best medicine. Laughter does, while you're doing it, obviously feel good, makes you feel better. But can it keep us out of doctor's offices and hospitals? Does it not just improve our mood, but actually improve our health? So laughter yoga didn't start as yoga at all. It got its start in the 1960s with this guy Norman Cousins. He was a writer and a magazine editor And he got this mysterious illness. He was in pain and he was bedridden. He has these nodules that are like gravel under his skin. 
So he gets this kind of grim diagnosis from a doctor, but he decides to check out of the hospital and into a hotel room. He stops taking his medication, and instead he sets up a film projector and he starts watching movies like the Marx Brothers and Candid Camera. I could dance with you till the cows come home. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows than you come home. Uh, And I made the very interesting discovery that 10 minutes of good belly laughter uh, would give me two hours of pain-free sleep. That's him in 1974. I got rid of the painkillers, the codeine, the sleeping pills. They were giving me 36 aspirin a day. And I I got rid of that and and went with the things that I believed in. And as I say, I discovered that laughter did produce a natural body anesthesia. It was a very exhilarating discovery. This kind of sounds like magical thinking to me, but studies have actually reproduced this effect. Laughing does increase the pain threshold. Cousins wrote a whole book about his experience. He called it Anatomy of an Illness. It was a huge bestseller. And one copy ended up in the hands of a doctor halfway around the world. Now, the reason we call it laughter yoga, because we combine laughter exercises with deep breathing techniques from yoga. This is the inventor of laughter yoga. He's a guy named Dr. Madan Kataria. He invented it in Mumbai in 1995. He cites Norman Cousins as his inspiration. Now thousands of people practice it all over the world. That brings more oxygen to our body and brain and makes us feel more healthy and more energetic. Scientifically, our body cannot differentiate between real and fake laughter. This is what I discovered. That's why a dozen people are crammed into this room on a Wednesday night to laugh like they're possessed. Some in this class have been coming for years. I've been doing it for about two and a half years. I have been doing this for a couple of years. I've been doing it for six years. I've lost track of how many years I've been doing this. I feel more centered and calmer in my life. So it sort of blocks out everything else. Uh, I had such severe back pain that I would say to people, hug me virtually. And not only did the back pain leave, but the memory of the back pain left. I have a doctorate in geriatric studies, and it's really great for your immune system. I do not get sick. Okay, now this might be true for all of them, but I think to both of us it sounded a little far-fetched. Yeah, it all seemed a little wishful to me, uh, but I was really interested in finding out why we humans laugh, why that evolved. And so I talked to the neuroscientist Robert Provine of the University of Maryland, who has studied that very thing, including laughter in chimpanzees. That's actually Professor Provine. Uh, being one of the three species of chimpanzees, I'm, I'm qualified to give you a sample of chimp laughter. The human ha-ha had its origin in the chimpanzee pant-pant sound. Chimps laugh. Chimps do laugh. And in fact, the other thing I discovered, and of course, they're primates, we're primates, that is not so crazy, but also rats laugh, they told me. What? Rats laugh. No. Does it sound like anything? All I want to know about is the rats laughing now. (laughs) Well, laughter is a signal we send to other people to change their behavior. Uh, It's a sign that this is about play. I'm not attacking you. In fact, Laughter is literally the sound of ritualized, uh, heavy breathing of rough-and-tumble play. What Dr. Provine and his team does is go out into 
public places and eavesdrop and watch people as they talk and as they occasionally chuckle and laugh during their conversations and write down how often they laugh, what makes them laugh. Um, he's the Kinsey of laughter. There you go. Uh, and, and what he's found isn't exactly what you would think makes people laugh in real life. What most people said uh, before laughter occurred wasn't anything that was remotely jokey. Perhaps only 10 to 15 percent of all pre-laugh comments are uh, remotely jokey. They're like, hey, where have you been? <laughs> or where'd you get that shirt? Or I've got to go now. <laughs> Not very good uh, sitcom material there. Not sitcom material exactly, but the earliest sitcoms had figured out something uh, that laughter is social and can be infectious. I know I give you a hard time, but it makes me feel horrible watching you go through this. You know what I'm going to do? What? Stop watching you. So laugh tracks work, and science explains why. With uh, television, you have the cutting off of the performers from the audience. And if there's no audience, uh, this was uh, very difficult for performers to have a proper uh, comic uh, timing. And also, you had people sitting at home wondering uh, where the comedy is. But uh, the laugh tracks are on the television situation comedy because they work. Uh, people are more likely to laugh and are more likely to rate material as funny uh, if there's a laugh track than when there's not. It's like a sign I meant to be funny. Exactly. Goodbye, Charlie. Oh, come on. Don't leave. You know what the worst part is? I actually believe the things you said. You're kidding. <laughs> Well, no laughter yoga would be complete without the lion of all laughters. So let's do the lion laughter. What does a lion have? Claws. So let's see your claws. Yeah, that is Kurt, you and me, roaring like, like lions. lions. And I can still do it. You're kind of into it. I, I, I was and I am. So that was a fun way to spend the afternoon with you, but did it make us healthier? Well, you and I are going to go back into the laughter yoga studio later in the hour. But before we do that, I'm going to talk with another neuroscientist who really thinks science is missing out by ignoring laughter. You could study psychology and neuroscience for your whole life, certainly in the UK, and never know that people fell in love with each other or found anything funny. What laughter might be able to tell us about human nature. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. This hour, everybody loves to laugh, but could laughter make us healthier? 
sorry, this is actually never happened to me. Someone who studies laughter, both uncontrolled and otherwise, is the neuroscientist Sophie Scott. She is interested in exactly what happens physiologically when we laugh. It does seem to completely overwhelm your motor system. You, you can't do anything else. You find yourself gasping for breath. You can't talk. It is trying to kill you. It's just squeezing air out of you. It is slightly sinister. So how did you, as a neuroscientist, get started in this uh, discipline? Well, I've been working for, I mean, literally decades on um, how we express emotion with the voice. And I'm particularly interested in what are called nonverbal expressions of emotion, things like <laughs> screams or <sighs> yelps of surprise or disgusted sounds. They're very interesting and they're more like animal calls than uh -huh. they are like speech. But one thing I was really struck about was that all the emotions we were looking at were really negative. And I just thought that doesn't really describe my life. So I started looking at some more positive emotions and hidden in there was laughter. That's interesting. So when you started doing this, did, did neuroscientists go, Sophie, what are you doing? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I've, had, um, I've had my work defaced by a colleague. I've no idea who it was. They wrote, is this science all over it? Um, it is, it, there's something about laughter that just seems really trite and stupid. I mean, like, it seems literally pointless to people that you would <laughs> yeah. study it. And that's basically meant we have entirely ignored positive emotional experiences. So you could study psychology and neuroscience for your whole life, certainly in the UK, and never know that people fell in love with each other or found <laughs> anything <laughs> funny. And similarly, as I, as I have been thinking about laughter, laughter obviously can be provoked in many different situations and serve many kinds of voluntary and voluntary functions. So in that sense, it seems almost... Uh, like, uh, like not suited to modern science where something is supposed to be about one thing. You know what I'm saying? Nothing's ever simple with humans. And I think what's interesting, one of the things that's very interesting about laughter is in some ways, pretty much everything we think we know about it, and this includes a lot of scientists, is wrong. So we think we do it a lot less than we do. Uh -huh. um, we think it's linked with jokes and humour, and it is linked to jokes and humour. But actually, most of the time when you're laughing in a conversation with somebody, you're laughing to show that you know them, right. you like them, you might even love them. You agree with them, you understand them, you're part of the same group as them. You're doing all this kind of affiliative work with laughter. So you might laugh if somebody says, oh, I'm going to miss my bus, because you understand what that means. Uh, but then there's that kind of amazing laughter you see in, in YouTube clips of TV newscasters losing control. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Are you okay? I just stopped laughing and I couldn't stop. <laughs> well, what causes that? Is it that the, uh, the person is on television where they're really not supposed to laugh and, and, and that makes them laugh more in a kind of self-fulfilling layering process? There are many layers to it, and I think that's one of the reasons why we enjoy it. So very often, I mean, I, I don't know how it works in the US, but certainly the BBC really does not like its presenters <laughs> it, laughing. Yeah. So I think one of the things we enjoy is the fact that they've got to keep going, <laughs> and, the, and you can hear everything it's doing to their voice, and they can't sort of not make a noise. So you, every time they try to talk, you hear the laughter affecting them. Because once it's got that toehold in there, yes. it will win. It will win a competition between huh. talking and breathing and laughing. Laughter will win. And also, I guess, they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't like the people that were around them. So there's a very famous clip of two men trying to do a cricket broadcast in the UK and they just keep making each other laugh helplessly. Beggars, for goodness sake, stop it. You're the 
There's Lawrence. Lawrence. <laughs> be well. And one of the things, one of the things people enjoy about that, I think, is, is that if they didn't like each other, that wouldn't be happening. Right. You know, you're hearing friends. Right. And so, as you say, there's layer after layer after layer when you hear somebody or watch somebody desperately trying not to laugh on, on live TV and radio. You, well, you've studied the differences neurologically between uh, that kind of involuntary laughter that we've been talking about and, and I guess, the, surely the more common voluntary laughter that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 so when you look at the brain, what what, what are the different things go, going on? Are the, do those come from different sets of places in the brain? So in terms of perception, there are huge differences in how your brain deals with spontaneous, authentic laughter versus more posed social you mean laughter. How, how my mean, brain judges your fake exactly, laugh versus your exactly, laugh. Yeah. exactly. What you see when people hear a I laugh that to ins- I, uh, the, the problem with the phrase fake is it makes it sound like it's yes, bad, but yes, actually, yes, most of the time, yes, yes. social laughter is really nice and we like it, and right. it's a very important skill to learn. What we see in the brain is there's actually more response to social laughter than there is to spontaneous laughter. There's lots of activation to spontaneous laughter, and it's strongly associated with auditory processing, probably because you hear sounds you never hear in any other context. <laughs> but when you listen to Social laughter. (laughs) You get all these activations in brain areas associated with thinking about what other people think. And they're activated normally in very complex tasks where you ask people to work out problems about what somebody else knows. And here we're seeing them recruited just when you hear somebody laughing. And I think that's because when you hear somebody laughing spontaneously... It's unambiguous. There's no question that person has really lost it. Uh-huh. And, you know, you can kind of enjoy that. When you hear somebody going, ah, <laughs> you know that is a fake laugh at some level. Right. And you are trying to work out why that person is producing that behaviour. There is an intention behind it. You know, maybe they're in pain. Maybe they're trying to cover up being embarrassed. Maybe they're trying to make somebody like them. Maybe they're trying to get out of a problem. You know, all this different stuff, that sort of stuff we do with social laughter. I think this is just a sign that... Um, we just keep coming back to it with laughter, which is that it's never neutral. Right. It's always meaningful, and we're trying to work out what that meaning is. Now, I have another scientific question, Doctor, which is, um, uh, and I don't know if this has been studied, but one of the famous side effects from the time one is a teenager is that you, you, you smoke marijuana, you, you in, in, ingest cannabis, is, un, is laughter, and con, uncontrollable laughter sometimes. It, any speculation or data about the neurological basis for that? I suspect that the main basis for it is actually that a lot of what's going on day to day, minute to minute in your brain is trying to stop you from laughing because there are many situations where it would not be appropriate to get completely hilariously giggly. You are actually suppressing it. So it just disinhibits this thing we would be doing all the time if we could. Probably, yes. I love that idea that we're just we're just laughed at laughing animals and and just we're, we're just keeping it tamped down all the time. Uh, yeah, I suspect so. Yeah. Huh. Now, in addition to studying this and being a scientist, you you a few years ago started doing stand up comedy. I did. Yes, I'm hilarious. I, I can tell. <laughs> I've been fielding a couple of emails from a TV producer who's interested in making a TV series about the search for the perfect sex toy. And such is the lure of brain imaging that they want to have brain images of people to determine how pleasurable the sex toys are. Rather than, I don't, just ask them. Anyway, no, but you don't get the glowing pictures. Don't get the glowing pictures. Uh, the, 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 did that come after this began being this focus of your science? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, I... 
my my involvement in this came from UCL, the university where I'm based in London, started something called Bright Club, where they get their academics to do stand-up comedy. And in fact, I'd gone along and advised them about laughter. And I thought, who would do this? I mean, who'd put themselves through right. that? That's just awful. And then one of my senior male colleagues was going, oh, have you done Bright Club, Sophie? You know, I did it and I was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, you swines. You know, you asked him, you haven't even asked me. Mm-hmm. It was sheer professional jealousy. But it's also given me a whole different perspective on how laughter works. It's actually been incredibly helpful way of just thinking completely differently about laughter. So it's actually been very helpful for my science, I think. And do you think, given your science, that that affected the way you tried to stand up in front of people and get laughs? I don't. Well, not at first, because I realised at first I did all the mistakes everybody makes. You know, so well, the classic mistake that a, a rookie makes for stand-up comedy is they talk over the laughter. So you say something, the audience laughs, and you're so panicked right. you just carry on anyway, yes, yes. and they will stop laughing because they want to hear what you're saying. And do you use like material from your from your science uh, in your yeah. in your act? Yes, I mean, no one's under any illusion that I'm a professional comedian. You know, they know I'm a scientist. They know I'm a professor at UCL, and they're very kind. But I found it a very interesting discipline. It's a completely different approach to writing talks, and I found it very helpful in terms of you know my wider scientific communication. So I did a TED talk last year, and there's no way I would have had the chutzpah to try and make yeah. it funny. Uh, Sophie Scott, this has been a pleasure. I really, really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I spoke with Sophie Scott last year. Her TED Talk is called Why We Laugh. I was a bit of a dark kid. I'd occasionally stage my own death for fun. (laughs) Mother, I've taken a whole bottle of pills. Oh, my God. What did you take? Tums. Maria, those are your father's. What, mother? I can't hear you. The calcium is coursing through my veins. If laughter makes us feel better, why do so many comedians talk so much about how mentally unhealthy they are, such as Maria Bamford? I've, uh, I never really thought of myself as depressed as much as paralyzed by hope. And Mark Marin. I'm just saying a lot of people are on medicine. They don't need to be because let's be honest, folks, it isn't easy for anyone. And and I think in most cases, the only difference between depression and disappointment is your level of commitment. And Conan O'Brien. I used to think I needed to be incredibly unhappy to be funny. Um, and you ha- and people tell you that's not true. I, I, you get to a point where you don't care if it's true or not. You just think, you know what, I'd rather be happy. I didn't go to a shrink until I was 22. And I started doing comedy in New York when I was 20. So laughter and uh, sadness and and depression, they all mixed together for me. That's Chris Gethard, who is a stand-up comedian and the host of The Chris Gethard Show. And he has his own podcast called Beautiful Anonymous. And on both of those shows and in his stand-up act, he often talks about his real struggles with depression and other mental health issues. Comedy was really, I think, in many ways, looking back on it, one of the things that was keeping my head above water. Yeah. So you don't want to romanticize it because that stops people from getting help. That being said, there are so many notable examples of depressed comics, but I've thought a lot about this, and I kind of think that the skill set of a comedian in many ways might overlap with someone who is really emotional to a maybe out-of-control degree in the sense that when you think about a good stand-up comic – 
a good stand-up comic doesn't just have good jokes. They know how to go into a room and say those jokes and sense how the crowd's responding to them and send the crowd in a certain direction for the reaction through like subtle manipulation through the through the way they're telling the joke you know the very very best comedians in the world always say like if they'll switch an individual word and try that out and play with it like it's a science it makes sense to me that people who train their instincts to just completely sense how other people are affected by things are people who in their own right might be prone to be highly affected by things right that makes sense yeah. And and w- w- you had to deal with thoughts of suicide and harming yourself and all that. Did that was that happening too while you were like in junior high school and high school or not until later? When I was a freshman in high school, I was being bullied pretty bad by this kid uh named Scott and our lunch tables were next to each other and I sat with a bunch of freshman nerds and he sat with a bunch of sophomores. And they would bully us and they'd yell things at us and then they started throwing food at us. And it was just demoralizing, you know, being there as a kid getting, you know, nailed with food and tell the teachers and they're not doing anything about it because they don't catch them in the act. And then you got clothes covered in this stuff all day and everybody's making funny and it was building. It went on for like months. And there was a... That's bullying. It was. It was. And I remember I brought a razor into school and my plan was I was going to cut my wrists in the bathroom and then uh, in, in my very melodramatic 14-year-old brain, I was going to write the word Scott on the wall of the stall I was in. And I went into the stall and I started, I don't know if I was seriously going for it, but I started trying to see if I could draw blood. But it was very difficult because the razor that I brought was one of those like single- Safety razors? Like no. a single-use disposable yeah, that's... plastic. Like they can barely, you can barely shave. get through a shave yeah. without needing to use like four of those, yeah. let alone to take yourself out. Um, so you're in college, you're an adult, you're going to a good university, you're, you know. I'm reasonable. Okay. State university. <laughs> but, but, but a, a well-known uh, Yeah, a well-known, good um, name brand. But, how, I mean, you know, they have like, you know, a, a, a lot of shrinks in university health service. Why, why did it take you until 22 to get uh, help? I remember there were two or three times where people would express concern, whether it was friends or family, and I would tell them, okay, I'm going to go see the shrinks at Rutgers. But I think it is, I just never went. I just never went. And um, I think it's such a taboo conversation, especially back then. Like, you have to keep in mind, this is 1998. I'm at a state school. I come from a blue-collar neighborhood in North Jersey. Irish Catholics who are just legendary for stuffing their feelings down. It was just like nobody followed up. Nobody ever checked to see if I was actually doing it. So once you you become an adult, you become a comedian, uh, did they feel... Did did your mental can I call it a mental illness? Yes, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, did 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 it feel uh, connected to? Hey, I'm going to become a comedian. The mental health issues I had and and my comedy uh, pursuits were very tied together. I don't know how much I knew it at the time. I was aware that it was the thing that made me happy most consistently. Very aware of that. But I also look back and realize that it was it was dangerous because it would be I wound up it was sort of this like adrenaline rush that I was chasing. Con- you get on stage, you get that instant feedback. You say a thing, people laugh, and that means they like you. I met a girl. I thought she was really cool. She was 24 years old. That's how old I was the last time I went on a first date. <laughs> I asked her out. She said yes. I was excited. She was not as excited. I learned this when she did not attend the date. 
I go back and forth because I realize um, comedy was really saving my life. It was also maybe becoming an addiction to the adrenaline. And the other aspect of it that goes in the negative column is I think it was one of the reasons I resisted actually getting help for so long because I think I was really buying into that myth of you have to be tortured, you won't be funny anymore. Like part of what's interesting about me and part of what gives me so much to say and a desire to say it is that I'm driven by these dark times so I can't get rid of those because that'll affect my comedy. And I look back- You always have those. (laughs) It's actually, I actually shake my head at it so hard because it's one of the things I hear from people the most in my profession about why they don't seek it out. And I go nuts because I actually got funnier. My career didn't really do anything until I was on medication for a few years Mm. because it's like, yeah, for for as interesting as it might be to be a loose cannon- once I was medicated and once I was in therapy, it was like, oh, now I can organize my thoughts. I can do second drafts. I can take meetings and not be just racked by anxiety and nervousness. Like all these skills you need to be able to have to have a career are things that only set in once I actually straighten my head out. And it, it really, it breaks my heart how many people, even today, as, as someone who talks about this, I will oftentimes have younger comedians approach me. And so often, they, ah, I don't want to go on pills. I think they'll take away my edge or something. And it's yeah. like, well, good luck with that. I hope it works out. But I think that's a really dangerous myth. And I wish people didn't um, perpetuate it. And and ha- apart from like letting you get organized and write scripts and return calls and all that, uh, has it affected the jokes you think of? That's a really great question. I don't... It's so hard to say because I don't know what jokes I would be writing (laughs) if I hadn't been medicated. But one thing I can say is that um, I was in therapy from 2002 to 2004 and I was medicated. And that was when I look back and really think of my time doing improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade as like it's most fertile. And then I went off the medications until 2007 and uh, things really hit the rails again over those years. And then 2007, when I got medicated again, that was when I started doing stand-up. And I started telling personal stories on stage. She said, when you were little, and the other kids used to pick on you for having such a big head, it always broke my heart. Because I knew that when you were being born, and you started crowning, like when you were emerging, the doctor took a step back <laughs> and shouted the words, my God, his head It's as big as a bowling ball. (laughs) And I think that was the first time I was really on a drug cocktail that was really working for me, that was really designed in a way that worked for me. So I think, I don't know if the content of my jokes would be funnier or more interesting if I wasn't medicated, but I think once I got to a place that chemically was correct for me is also when I started being myself on stage and talking about my personal life on stage and you know, those are things that are very daunting to do and you feel a little judged. And I think it did help me transition to a place where I had the uh, bravery to do that, to go up there and be myself and try to say things that I actually meant. Yeah. There's an episode of your show, of your TV show, where where you had uh, people call in and you and uh, L.A. Kemper, who's the actress from uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, asked them if they were okay. I want to play a clip from that. Bethany, who's next? All right, let's talk to Kyle. Let's ask Kyle, him. baby, are you okay? No, ma'am. 
You know, all right, Kyle, what's, what's going on? I don't have a college degree. I'm 25. I don't have a job. I'm scared I'm going to die alone, and I'm scared to talk to girls. You have a lot of time to sort things out, figure out what you want from life. That's great advice. And I'll say from my end, you have a great beard. There's girls who just love a good beard. You got to find the beard girls. Look at the smile on your face, Kyle. How bad can things be? Uh, I guess not very bad. Oh, no, they still sound so bad. (laughs) Just based on that reaction. I don't think we're going to solve all your problems. (laughs) Uh, The idea there being, well... Basically, to provide a platform, what I've come to realize is that I have a platform and I have this material that I do from my own life at times that will go dark and that manages to wind up being all right and wind up being funny. I I really remember the feeling of being young and feeling like I wasn't supposed to talk about this and feeling like it was kind of like, well, go, if you're feeling sad, you go deal with it and don't freak everybody out. And I think, you know, for as cheesy as it might be, I think I really sat and thought about, like, what would, what would have been useful to me when I was 14 or 15 and really scared and feeling really broken and feeling like I wasn't allowed to talk about it? I bet if I had a forum that was outright saying, no, 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 you, not only can you talk about it here, but we won't even really – we won't not only will we not judge it, we won't even take it that seriously. Right. Like, well, and I'll just yes, laugh about it. It's not an educational PSA. No, we're not Son, solving anybody's problems. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it's not – it doesn't have to be this big life moment to just say, hey, I get yeah. sad sometimes. And that to me feels like, well, if I can provide that and still make it something that comedically I'm proud of, it would almost be wrong to not right. try to touch in with the viewers and, and see how they're doing. You're a different version of Mr. Rogers or something. On some level, on some level, as, as sad as that might be, I think there is an apt comparison there. Chris Gethard, thank you very much. Thank you. That was a, a fun talk. Season three of The Chris Gethard Show airs on True TV this fall. There are many forms of amputation. So what makes doctors laugh? The two most common being single amputees and married amputees. You probably don't want to know. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. I finally made it through med school. Somehow I made it through. I'm just an intern. I still make a mistake. Studio 360. I'm just really nervous. Of course you're nervous. You are pregnant, right? There is a creature inside of you moving around, and it's like getting smarter and bigger every day. If I was you, I'd be freaking out. So the practice of medicine obviously makes for great fodder for comedy. The job of doctors is dealing with practically every physical, bodily subject not fit for polite company, and and sometimes, uh, often, uh, dealing with death, and we all know about gallows humor. But it's one thing for a comedian or an actor playing a doctor on television to make jokes. It's very different in real life when doctors and nurses are, say, dealing with you and, and your illness. How do those people decide when joking is over the line or not? Studio 360 alumna Amanda Aranchik is a reporter at WNYC, and she brought us this story. 
Two healthcare workers are performing in one of those exercises taken from improv theater. Here's the scene. They're Santa's elves, and they're standing side by side, and they're sifting through mail at the North Pole. You know, I have I have problems with uh, with with uh, deep vein thrombosis, and these striped <laughs> tights are just killing me. Well, you should try. Turns out, Santa's workshop is a brutal place to work. These letters, if you've ever read any of these, I want a pony. Well, you know what? I don't get health insurance, so cry <laughs> me a river, oh, Sally. Shift right. Shift right. The group included a dental student, an OBGYN, physical therapist. There were 35 people in total who came to Chicago to attend medical improv. Um, um, uh, many of you don't have improv experience, and it is amazing that in these few short days... in these The four-day workshop is the brainchild of Katie Watson. She's a professor of medical bioethics at Northwestern University. And in her slightly less academic life, she teaches improv and sketch comedy at Second City. She has merged her two worlds here, teaching improv techniques to improve communication in the medical field. And I think medical encounters are often unsuccessful when one person, typically the clinician, tries to impose a script on the patient before they've even walked in the room. She says that's the value of medical improv. It's not comedy camp for doctors, but it's about learning to walk into situations without prejudging, to be open and honest, to listen deeply, every medical encounter is to some degree improvised because you have two human beings who arrive hopefully without too much of a script and they have to develop a shared story. And develop rapport quickly, which often does involve humor. And it gets back to the question that brought me here. How are people in healthcare supposed to figure out when humor is appropriate? When the workshop finished for the day, I asked the group, What was absolutely not funny? I'm Lucy. I'm an emergency physician. And I think what's not funny is when stories are shared outside of the workplace. What's not funny is denying or dismissing anyone's humanity. Absolutely not funny is doing harm. Abuse. Picking on the vulnerable. Making fun of patients. Jokes that have to do with race. Violence of any kind is not funny. So clearly, when it came to joking around, there were a lot of off-limit topics. It's a long, long list. Right? It's a long list. So uh, I guess what I'd be curious to know is, like, is there anything that is absolutely always funny? This was a harder question to answer. I want something that's, like, always fine. Like, clowns, always fine. No. No. As a group, they couldn't even agree if farting was always funny. Maybe I was asking the wrong question. Sometimes we use, that's not funny, as a proxy for, that's not okay. And Watson said, those are not the same thing. So I wanted to try an example with her. This is from a doctor named John. And John didn't want me to use his last name. So you're John. What kind of doctor can I say? I am a urologist. Urologist. Tell me, what does a urologist do? Urinary tract and genital tract. So helping someone who's having trouble peeing or has an issue with their sexual organs. If you really took yourself seriously, you'd probably want to tell people you're a neurosurgeon or, you know, a cardiac surgeon or something like that. If you say you're a a urologist, oftentimes people will approach that with like, oh, really? But he loves what he does, and he wants to help people. He also knows his work can lead to some absurd and humorous moments. I had this kid come in, and he said, I think I have a piece of plastic in my bladder. The kid's about 16 years old. I said, well, what makes you think there's a piece of plastic in your bladder? And he said, I was taking a nap, and there was a piece of plastic on my windowsill, And when I woke up, it was gone. 
the piece of plastic was lost. So John asks the kid, What made you think your bladder is the first place it would be? And he, I don't know. I'm just sure it's up there, okay? So I look up in the kid's bladder, and sure enough, there's a piece of plastic up there. What? That he's shoved up there. Up his penis? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I left the room and just said in passing to a nurse, boy, I hope he doesn't lose his cat. (laughs) (laughs) The doctor says he used a little grasper and he pulled the plastic out, and the kid was fine. But is this story funny? Well, you're asking me if it's funny. Yes. Did you think it was funny? Yes. Kudos. (laughs) I laughed. (laughs) Katie Watson said I was asking the wrong question. Is it funny? And that depends on your taste in humor. She said this is a better question. Was it appropriate? I would say yes. I don't have a problem with it because the doctor didn't say it to the patient, said it in the hallway. To me, that's his way of just commenting like, that was absurd, and then moving on. And it was not meant to be heard by the patient. To say that you can never make a joke outside of earshot, I think just goes too far. Watson describes this story as being backstage humor between a doctor and a nurse. Backstage is where patients are not, and front stage is where they are. Many professions have jokes that they share between just themselves. Teachers, journalists, soldiers... But sometimes the line that divides backstage from front stage gets blurry. Take this story out of Virginia. A man goes to the doctor for a colonoscopy. Sorry, I have so many questions. Okay. The first time doing anything like this. Okay. If you didn't catch that, he said, Sorry, I have so many questions. It's the first time I'm doing anything like this. And then he goes under. Later in the car ride home, He gets out his phone and realizes he'd unintentionally recorded the entire procedure. And really, after five minutes of talking to you in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and man you up a little bit. The doctors made fun of his anxieties and that he didn't like watching the needle go in his arm. Well, why are you looking then, retard? I said, turn your head. Why are you looking? That person is naked and unconscious. They're as vulnerable as they ever will be. This situation also presents a dilemma. Are you backstage or are you front stage? The patient had accidentally transgressed what the doctors thought was a safe space. Watson says that's not the problem, though. The doctors weren't joking about last night's episode of Broad City or a panda video. They were joking about the patient. The patient was unconscious, but they're still present. And the doctor is in the midst of his or her work. And I think that that still counts as front stage. So how are people who work in healthcare supposed to navigate this fraught territory? I went back to the improv students. They said humor is really important in their line of work. It makes all of the difficulties tolerable. I think humor is the thing that can be the light in the darkness. Um, Sometimes if you don't laugh, you cry. Lauren, a social worker from Chicago, said humor is inherent in the kind of work she does. Yeah, I think humor and laughter, it's its coping. And I work with people with dementia and their families. And in our encounters, everyone's like, oh, that's, that's real. And it is. But in every encounter, there's a moment of laughter. There's a moment of, you know, the surreal that is occurring. So it helps cope. It helps connect. And it helps deal with what's happening. That was the point. Whether it's appropriate or not, humor in medicine is inevitable. Oh, here's one for you. Yeah, look, read it. I want a new kitty cat. (laughs) You know what I wish? 
I wish I didn't have heart murmurs. That's what I wish. Uh, no kidding. Amanda Ronchek is a reporter at WNYC. to the room. Uh, if a neuroscientist were here, they might say we were in a very high state of relaxation, perhaps the highest state of relaxation. So if you feel so inclined, go around and give each other an embrace. <laughs> oh, we did it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm having a terrible laughter yoga flashback. I think that's technically called PTSD. Well, or light, anyway. <laughs> it, it was slightly awkward, especially the hugging the strangers as you're faking the laughter. Two awkward things combined into one. Um, but, you know, to tell the truth, after our hour there, uh, I did feel better. I felt my jet lag... Uh, was remediated. Yeah, and I felt kind of weirdly energized. But there was this one person there who, like, totally had our number. My name is Lisa, and I heard you say this is terrifying since December. Well, I have to say that I sat for the whole first session going, I thought everybody could see the flashing light because all I was thinking is, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. And then when we went around and talked, and I said, this was the stupidest thing I ever did. And three weeks later, I came back. (laughs) What made you come back? So when I left here, I went on YouTube, and I started listening to a lot of things. I got a better sense of the conceptual underpinnings of it, and I did notice that I felt better. And it it stayed forced for a really long time. So here I see you guys, and I'm like, oh, they're going to think we're so stupid. And you say this is terrifying. And then I got hysterical laughing watching you two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your laughter at us seemed pretty authentic. (laughs) The thing about Lisa is she knows that we think she looks completely nuts, and she just doesn't care because it makes her feel better. Absolutely. And it it was the moment in the talkback period where I thought like, okay, I, I, I get this. Over time, maybe I would be able to join her. Yeah, and I kind of thought it was a little bit of the placebo effect. You know, she thinks it's making her feel better, so it makes her feel better. And we are, God knows, living in the age of the placebo. But in fact, one of the neuroscientists I talked to, Sophie Scott, said that it seems to be more than that. It certainly gives you measurable changes in your body's physiology that does relate to mood. So you get a measurable change in pain thresholds when you've been laughing. That seems to be not specific to laughter. That's probably because you're doing quite a lot of exercise within reason Uh when you're laughing. You also get, and this seems to be more specific to laughter, you get a reduction in adrenaline and a longer-term reduction in cortisol. And those are both hormones associated with stress. Right. So that's really key. Because cortisol and adrenaline are real hormones in your body that are associated with changes, stuff like how your brain is functioning and how much belly fat you have. Right. So maybe they're right. Maybe laughter does have a real physical effect. Now, within that, what we don't know is, is that the laughter or is it the fact that it pretty much always that laughter is being elicited in a social context? So was I, was I feeling great because I'd been laughing all afternoon? Or was it actually because I'd been laughing with two friends all afternoon? And it's very hard to start separating that because if I hadn't been friends. with my friends, I wouldn't right. have laughed that much. 
Oh, the chickens and the eggs there. Laughter makes us feel better, but maybe it's because we we do it most of the time with people we like and like being around. But I like what she said about the effect being real. Well, I, I do know that the the rare time when I find a, a, a television sitcom these days that actually makes me laugh, like Veep or Silicon Valley, I, I, I am truly addicted in, in to it in a, in a way because laughing at it with my loved ones feels good. And maybe that's enough. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Well, thank you, Mary, for joining me on this uh, laughter adventure. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. <laughs> oh, I'm such a happy Chewbacca! <laughs> Not to imply that that is Mary Harris. Mary is a health reporter at WNYC. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Thanks to Matt Frassica and Julia Lowry-Henderson for their work on this episode. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our production assistant is... Claude Gallette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. And before we go, if along with listening to me, you'd like to read something I wrote... I've got a book out. You may have seen me making the rounds on TV, on radio, podcasts, all over the place talking about it. It's called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. It's about how our various weaknesses for magical thinking and wishful delusion, among other things, led us to electing a truth-indifferent reality TV star as president. Some of the threads of Fantasyland came out of stories we've presented here on Studio 360, including our show about the Disney theme parks, where I spent some days and met some people who appear in the book. Anyhow, Fantasyland is available. This is one of my favorite tautologies, wherever books are sold. And if you'd prefer to keep listening to me, and this subject seems interesting, I recorded the audiobook as well. Thanks. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, you don't need to have kids to write for them. Like Margaret Weiss Brown, who wrote Goodnight Moon. She said, um, you know, to write for children, you don't have to like children, you just have to like what children like. Bruce Handy's case for children's books being real literary masterpieces. Next time in Studio 360.